Hi, Neil. Are you, are you holding up? Don't talk to me. I'm, I'm sorry, it's a podcast. I'm, I'm going to have to... World Cup grump. How are you doing? I'm okay. Anyway, let's start with a lovely quote from the olden days. Okay, let's move past the football entirely. Yeah, yeah. Right, let's when go. things were nicer. I soon got used to the singing, for the sailors never touched a rope without it. Some sea captains, before shipping a man, always ask him whether he can sing out at a rope. Oh, I like that. What's that from? That, Becca, is a line from Redburn, which is a novel by Herman Melville, the guy who wrote Moby Dick. It came out two years before Moby Dick and is, incidentally, largely set in Liverpool. He's, um, he's talking about sea shanties. I don't really associate sea shanties that much with Liverpool, though. Well, they are actually associated quite a lot with Liverpool, but they're also really, really important to the northeast of England. Ah, uh, yeah. And I was up there recently checking out the opening kind of um, event of the Great Exhibition of the North, which is this summer-long programme of arts and culture around Newcastle and Gateshead. And whilst I was there, I just started delving a little bit deeper into like the audio culture of, of that region and got in touch with these guys who told me so much about sea shanties and about folk music and the links to the coal industry. And yeah, it was a really, really wonderful trip. Amazing. The tyne, the tyne, the flowing tyne, what sights and sounds you give us. The tyne, the tyne, the coolie tyne, the queen of all the rivers. They say that if you want to hear the real history of a people, listen to their folk songs. It's a history not written by academics, but by the people themselves. Stories that are etched into the grain of, of a community and passed down from one generation to the next. Of course, these days, folk record their life experiences differently. We've got everything from social media to stand-up comedy, all sorts to fulfill that role. But the operative word here is record. We're used now to our stories being somehow laid down, written or televised or digitised. So what's amazing, really, about folk music is that it's an oral tradition with the stories passed from mouth to ear to mouth to ear. Those few places in the UK where this old oral tradition of English folk song is still going are about as precious as it gets. Recently, I've been thinking more about English folk music after a trip I took up to the Northeast to check out the Great Exhibition of the North, which is a summer-long programme of arts and culture events taking place around Newcastle and Gateshead. Walking along the River Tyne, I put some customised headphones on to listen to a sound walk composed by Martin Green of the folk trio Lau. It was a composition he'd made to accompany a walk along the river, and it was designed to explore the notion of time. It was all swelling orchestral music and the squawking of kitty wakes and echoing footsteps, with snippets of evocative readings like, if you do find yourself smothered by the regrets of the past, thinking like a river could be useful. <laughs> 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 
Come in, come in. It's good to meet you. Good to meet you too. I got to thinking about the role the river has played in the lives of the people here, so I arranged to meet someone who knew how folk song had captured that life. I'm just going to make some tea, is that all right? Ah, lovely, yes, please. Jim McGeehan is a folk singer based in Cullercoats, a small town overlooking the coast just north of where the Tyne meets the sea. He's known in the area as Shanty Jim. It was a big flood in the whole metro here where you've just yeah. got off. It was the one that were in boats along the... So these are like gents in top hats? Gents in top hats. Is that a soldier or something? No, it would be one of the fishermen probably, uh, I would imagine. Jim greeted me wearing a North Shields Fishkey t-shirt. I sat down at his living room table as he made me some tea. All around me the walls were lined with family photos and nautical paraphernalia like a little wooden sailing boats, there was a, a miniature ship's lantern, a glass grog keg and a whole row of scrimshaw. What's this running at? It's, it's a shark's tooth. It's a shark's tooth that's been carved into a, a little fish. It's a bit broken, actually. It's lost its tail. Uh, <laughs> what's that called? What's that tradition called where you're carving things out of? Scrimshaw. If you scrimshaw, look up yeah. left, there were a lot of whale's teeth up there. There's scrimshaw and whale's yeah. teeth up there. Yeah. They're whale's teeth that have been carved and inked. Kind of like tooth tattooing. It is. It's, <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. it's what yeah. the sailors did in their spare time. And, you know, a lot of them were, yeah, they weren't very literate people. But they, but they, they, a lot of them could draw, so mm. a lot of them did did pictures, and uh, you know, one of the they used the materials they had to hand. When I was heading up to meet Jim, I, I had an image of of someone gruff, with hard worked hands who might look at me coming up from that there London, with a sideways glance, or even worse, a, a withering one. But he was so gentle and so humble. He it was like he he couldn't quite believe we'd made the trip to see him to hear hear him sing these songs. He actually reckoned he knew, in some form or another, around 300 shanties. My first sea shanty, I was seven years old and I was in a school play and I was a pirate and I had to sing Billy Boy, which is a local sea shanty collected in this area. When I was 16, uh, I met uh, a guy called Stan Hugel. Now, Stan Hugel is the, the, the primary collector of sea shanties in the world and I uh, met him in Scarborough at a folk festival. And... Uh, I took a very bold step, which I'm still surprised myself, because I, I, I started writing to this man, uh, who was then, he would be in his late 50s, and we corresponded for years, and uh, and I told him I was very interested in sea shanties, and I had his book by then, of course, he had written this book in the 1950s, called Shanties from the Seven Seas, and, uh, and it's the major work on sea shanties that's ever been written, it has over 350 shanties in it, so I set myself about learning them all. And so here's Stan Hugel, who's quite aware that the often rather dirty sea songs of old can still fill many a concert hall. He was basically at sea from the age of 14, so from 1920 he was at sea, he was 14 then, and then he was eventually captured uh, by the Germans in the war and spent uh, a few years in prisoner of war camp. I am one of the very few men that ever sang these songs at sea. I sang them on decks of sailing ships, Australian, American, the last American down east in the giant guy Gus. Uh, he was an amazing man. He, he, was, he left school at 14 to go to sea, and yet he spoke 12 languages and uh, quite flu fluently, including British. Japanese and several forms of Chinese, which he just learned from fellow sailors, you know. From quite early uh, in his days at sea, he realised that the sailors were singing these songs, which were quite unique. I was born in 1906. And I'm still seeing the damn thing. <laughs>
It is of great interest that Stan continues to sing these shanties. After all, he's the only person alive that can still sing the songs as they were sung in his youth. Of equal importance is his book Shanties from the Seven Seas. It has remained the definitive work on sea shanties. Oh. help of his brother who, who could write music he, he managed to publish this book with the with the tunes as well as the words of all of the shanties that, he, that he'd heard all over the world you said that you learned a lot of your your songs from your grandma Basically, I wasn't very fortunate at all. Um, my grandfather had been killed in the mine. My great-grandfather was killed in the mine as well. Very young age. My mother was uh, uh, five when her father was killed in the mine, and they, they brought his body home in a wheelbarrow, all covered in coal dust. Yeah. So because of that, um, my when my mother was got married, my, my grandmother lived with us, or well, technically we lived with her. But anyway, my grandmother was a great singer, and, and so she would sit me on her knee and sing me all these songs. And one of the songs I'll be singing in my concert tonight, because uh, it's still a favourite, I'll be singing Lavender's Blue, and I learned that from her when I was about two and a half, three. And uh, so I'll be singing on that, Lavender's Blue, dilly dilly. Rosemary's green When I am king Dilly dilly You shall be queen That's a very old um, 17th century certainly Maybe older uh, Song and but, but my granny used to sing that to me Is that essentially a love song Lavender's Blue? Oh. Well it is essentially a very bawdy song oh, right. That became, oh, yeah. that became <laughs> a, a, a lullaby yeah. So my granny used to sing it to me as a lullaby but when it first appeared in print, it's quite a filthy song. Can you give us a kind no. of... No. Okay. <laughs> this seemed to be a common theme with a lot of the sea shanties. They reflect the values of a period where women and people of colour were second-class citizens. The songs are very bawdy, that you wouldn't sing in mixed company. So, you know, a lot of them, because these were on ships with all men, they were rarely carrying female crew or female passengers but uh, if they did carry female passengers they probably wouldn't sing the songs you know and uh, so these these are of quite misogynistic songs um you could say they were racist songs but in actual fact there's no evidence that that, that the black sailors and white sailors had any antipathy between them um but they obviously they do contain one or two racist words which most people who sing them now obviously take out uh, it's quite easy to clean up a shanty, you know, and replace the N-word with a, a different word and replace some of the sexual um, connotations with something a bit cleaner. So you don't usually hear them sung in their pure form, you know, in concerts and folk clubs and things like that because uh, it, it, they would be unacceptable. Um, nowadays, you know. Were they musically cleaned up as well? Is there something about the way that they were delivered that was... Hmm, yes. Um, it's um, a, a very strange form of music. A lot of the early folk song collectors 
dismissed, really, because they would think, oh, well, it hasn't really got a story and it's not some ancient ballad about some maid being rescued from a dragon or something, and therefore it has no relevance. And so some of the early folk song collectors were quite dismissive of, of shanties as not a pure form of music. Later on, when, you start, when they started to sort of accept them as maybe they were um, worth, worthy of something, the very late 19th century, early 20th century collections are, are usually saying sea shanties with pianoforte accompaniment and things like that, you know. So they were used as Victorian kind of parlour songs, all cleaned up not sung in the proper way and this is what Stan Hugel rebelled against when he, he brought out his book he wanted to he wanted to have these songs sung properly so he wrote them down as they were being sung by sailors Stormy's dead that good old man way storm along John now when it was written down there that would just be Stormy's dead that good old man way storm along John how do you put the semi-demi quaver in it goes yep <laughs> and so that that's the kind of thing and so Stan tried to reintroduce that and said this is what this is how it was sung and and so whenever he was doing a performance he would make sure he put all of these what he called hitches back in the songs and this is the way the sailors sang it you know so they could be heard above the wind and the flapping sails and the waves and everything because that, that's the main thing when you're singing at sea Machinery, you know, it's. Um, I was singing in America a week, week before last, and we were singing aboard a wooden sailing ship, actually at the equipment. So we were singing at the ropes, and so at the halyards, and at the sheets, and we were singing at the capstan and at the, the windlass. Now, particularly at the windlass, which is a very clanky mechanism, it's going round and round, going clank, 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 clank. You're singing above this racket, you know, and uh, it was quite difficult so they sang they sang these yelps and and screeches and probably pitched the songs quite high because if you pitch the songs low it doesn't carry very far aboard the ship it might carry across the ocean but it doesn't carry very far on the ship so they probably sang these songs quite high tis a rough tough life of toil and strife we whale men undergo and we don't give a damn when the gale is done how hard them winds do blow For we're only... Cullicos was a whaling, had whaling ships, the, you know, going out from here, from the beach here. Uh, North Shields was a major whaling port, and so was Whitby, further down the coast. So these, these towns were, were lit by whale oil. I mean, in those days, that's where oil came from. All of our oil lamps were heated with whale oil. Houses used to stink because using whale oil, you know, instead of you know, paraffin oil, uh, that's how we lit uh, houses. And, but, so that was the main thing they went out for. They wanted the oil. Once more we sail with a gnarly gale Through the ice and sleet and rain Six herring months have passed away In the cold Kamchatka sea But now we're bound from the Arctic ground Rolling down to old Maui 
The sea shanties um, are work songs, and so we can trace their origins back to about 300 BC. Uh, they're mentioned in um, the uh, Oxyrhynchus papyri, about 300 BC, but just as chants, you know, they were just chants, because in those days, vessels were propelled not by sails, but by oars, so you had biremes and triremes. The very first thing that's um, written down uh, from the Greek texts, they, they were just singing, rap-pa-pi, 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 over and over again to keep this momentum of 40 strokes per minute. So you needed songs or chants that could keep that tempo up. And they're still being sung today. They're still sung on board Chinese junks, Japanese junks, Indian fishing vessels, Sardinian fishing vessels, um, vessels in the West Indies, boat, boat launching in the West Indies. They're still being sung today. You could still go out now and collect sea shanties that no one's ever heard before. At night, you couldn't sleep because you, you'd be hurting a cold, so we just make up songs. Most of the captain, they would get right down there and sing with you too. They would sing just like we do. You could head all over the ocean, you know, sing just like music was on the water, you know. Won't you help me to raise on board? So the maritime history of this area mostly involves the coal trade. Looking back at my family, they all moved to this area to go down the mines. Nearly all. There was one or two in the shipyards, but uh, most of them ended up down the mines. The, the coal was being produced up the river since Roman times. You know, there's mines going into the side of the Tyne, the Tyne Valley. And they were, the Romans were mining coal out of there. You had, to, you had to take it to the mouth of the river to, to, to deliver it anywhere. The coal was then transported you know, from here around the world, even, uh, you know, even to Australia and places. But uh, most of the coal from here went to London. It was shipped in these, these two-masted vessels called, called Collier Briggs. With a good wind, you could get down there in a week and back in, back in a week, which, but, but mostly uh, the round trip took about four weeks. And then along came the railways and they could take coal down to London and, and in a few hours. So that was the end of the, the, the 7,000 Collier Briggs that had existed over several centuries or disappeared almost overnight. Now you're net rope man and boy you're on the go And you're learning all about seafaring For your education scraps of navigation As you hunt the bonny shoals of heaven We headed down to the Bridge Inn in the shadow of the amazing George Stevenson Bridge at the base of the old town, which was a centre for folk music in the area. All the performers sat on the stage in a sort of semicircle or in an arc. Big names, even at the time, so it was quite intimidating for visiting performers and for floor singers to, to stand in front of this panel, as it were. What was it? 
Where have you been, my canny hinny? Where have you been, my bonny man? Where have you been, my canny hinny? Where have you been, my bonny man? I've been turning a road, cruising back and forward. I've been to the Norad many's the long day. I've been to the Norad cruising back and forward, but I daresn't come ashore for Bover and his gang. We downed a pint with another local singer who had roots in the mines, Benny Graham. It had been a stonking summer's day and it was still pretty hot when I met Benny in the early evening. Yet with all its dark wood, the pub felt cool. Benny Graham was another of the singers who were around at the start of the Bridge Folk Club. And I found him sitting in a shaft of sunlight in a quiet, well, a quiet-ish corner. He really wasn't hard to miss in his woolen fleece and baggy trousers. And the sailor's cap he was wearing had a badge attached that bore the double mask of the actors' union. It's been uh, 50 odd years now we've, we've been playing music in this pub. Well, you can see looking around, you know. There's, there's more oak and mahogany in here than your average ship, you know. <laughs> Tyneside's been, a, uh, over the years, been a great place for, for people who sing and play. And so even on a, uh, a night upstairs when, when you maybe only, you know, in, in, on a, a winter's night when it was quiet, you might have 35 or 40 people. Half of them would stand up and sing a song or play. Would you sometimes just get people coming up to sing who you'd never seen before? Yeah, it happened a lot. It was, there was uh, people, people used to just turn up at the door and say, you know, sort of... Is, if there's, if there's not a guest on, there's any chance of me singing the song. Everybody in the room got a chance to sing the song. And it, and it didn't matter who you were, whether you were famous or, or, or you know, or never heard of you, you got a chance to sing. Because I was wondering if it was a particularly northeast thing. It was very strong in the northeast, stronger in the northeast than a lot of places. Um, if you like, the, there was all of those industrial songs to go at. Like Jim, Benny's family were all coal miners and mining songs were important for people in the area not just to tell stories, but for political solidarity. Um, this guy, good friend of ours, um, called Eddie Pickford. And Eddie's been writing coal mining songs for, forever and a day. And one of his songs is almost like a sea shanty, because a sea shanty's got like a call and an answer. So the shanty man sings a line and then you sing a line back to him. And that's what keeps you in going. So I'll give you a snippet so you see, see how it works. He goes, when I was young and in me prime, hey, I, I could you, why I was you and all the time. Now me human days are through, through, through. Now me human days are through. Now me human days are through. At the first the dust did flee. Hey, I, I got you, but now that dust is killing me. Now me your undies are through, through. Now me your undies are through. Shanties, to, to be honest, uh, uh, were only ever used for working the ship. They were never uh, entertainment. The sea, sea shanties were there for one purpose and one purpose only, and that was to keep two gangs of men who were doing a job in time with each other. So the shantyman would stand equidistant between the two gangs, singing as loud as he could, didn't matter whether he was tuneful as long as he was loud, 
and they would pull and push and pull and push if they were working pumps or haul on ropes if they were lifting sails and that kept them in rhythm that kept them on the go coal mining songs were recreational they were they were sung in the pub after you'd finished because there was there was uh, it was a different game. When you were working down the pit, you were working with a, with a hand pick or a, or a compressed air pick, and you were digging coal out, you didn't have any room or, or voice to sing. You said before that you know, the songs would come out of good times and bad times. I was wondering if maybe in the, during the 1980s miners' strikes, or indeed at the end of the mines, if that, that, those periods generated more songs or a particular kind of song? Certainly, it certainly... Um, it generated a, a, a lot of a lot of bother, uh, without a doubt. There was and, and there was yeah, there were songs that, that were written at the time. Um, there was uh, there were songs that were revived at the time. We have writers in the in the northeast that that are, that are taking that subject on. It was very hard for a lot of them um, to to write stuff that was singable in the folk clubs because uh, there were whole families split by that by that strike. It was an emotive subject to, to, to launch into. But there was a lot of stuff written at the time um, by the women um, uh, uh, who supported the men that were out on strike. Uh, people like Marie Little sang, sang all over the, the, uh, the North East. There was this, it's, a, it's a hard, um, a hard, hard subject, that, especially if you're living through it, you know? So was that ever manifest like say here in the in the in the club here like the kind of the that tension between when was families that have been split yeah there was there was people who, who on both sides you know that's um towards the the end of the uh the, the, the strike the, there was people going back to work um some people would defend their actions and say well, they've got every right to go back to work. Other people would just put the shutters down and say they're scabs and nobody should talk to them again, you know. That's, that's a hard place to be. Um, I met a vicar, I'm not going to tell you which village he was in, but he gave his last money, last penny to the cause. People were coming knocking at the door and had absolutely nothing, yeah. And he had been delivered of some corned beef from a Russian freighter that came into port, yeah. And the corn reef was offloaded under cover of darkness and put in the vicar's front room. And people who were really destitute and had absolutely nothing he used to slip them a tin of corned beef. And I asked him if he'd like a drink one night. And, and he said, I don't go into the club. People will think I've got money, you know. And I, he says, I haven't got a, a cent left. I said, no, that's not how we do it. We go into the club and I'll buy you, because I knew he liked a glass of whiskey. I said, I'll buy you a glass of whiskey and I'll make sure everybody sees me paying for it and you not, you know. And that, and that was the only way he would take a drink, you know. So, I mean, is there a feeling that we're losing some of these traditions, you know? Well, yeah, the communities are breaking up and, and all the rest of it. The work's not there anymore. I mean, these people, uh, they, they existed in Corrie villages, so everybody that, that was in the village had some kind of dependency on the coal mine. They lived and they worked together, uh, and but even the ones who didn't work directly in the pit, they benefited from men who did work in the pit because they provided money for the families, which, you know, now the places uh, are, are just... They're not the villages or the towns that they used to be, and people don't know each other because they don't work together and they don't, you know, they don't live together. Um, but 
you know, there, there are still there are still places, you know, where where you've got a, a like-minded sort of bunch of folk who who run a community association and they all go there and they have a bit singing, a bit play, and so it's not gone, but it's not like in your face like it used to be. I started to compile my own book to try and put them all together. <laughs> so I tried to compile my own sort of hand handwritten uh, log of, of, of shanties, you know. So these are these are the shanties that I'm sort of I'll, before I die I'll try to have them all written down. <laughs> all my collection of shanties. So I'm I'm putting them into this sort of ledger. Uh, and uh, I'll probably have to probably be better off doing it online. When was the last time you wrote in it? Oh, I haven't done it for years. But Jim and Benny aren't the only singers trying to keep the old songs alive. Younger groups like sisters Rachel and Becky Unthank are combining traditional Northumbrian songs with other genres. That's Becky and Rachel Unthank's mum, who's actually Jim McGain's partner. I spend, I spend most of my time nowadays, because I'm 70 years old now, and I, I like to pass my songs on to young people. My own children... Uh, Although they're interested in my songs, they, say, they sing their own songs. So I'm very keen to pass my songs on to the next generation and the next generation. And there's time enough tomorrow Some of the groups around, there's a group called the Youngins, and I taught, that taught them a few of their, their songs. Uh, the Wilsons on Teesside, and uh, in particular, the Unthanks. So the Unthanks are very, very keen on shanties and local songs. I regard myself as a custodian, and my main job is to make sure that the songs carry on and are continue to be sung. Whilst I was up there and I was chatting to Jim and all these other people, something started to nag at me a little bit that I just couldn't quite resolve and still haven't really resolved. These songs started out as functional tools. They were designed to help you keep a beat or to pull up an anchor or to express some political rage. But with the industry on its knees, have they stopped being relevant to people's lives? Are they just museum pieces? But having met Jim, it was clearer these songs are woven through his family, through his friends, through their nights in the pub. The music isn't a theory for him, it runs through his daily life. We, we did the Eon Sound Walk this morning, which I think, which Becky was Yeah, Becky's, that, which I gave her that song uh, that, that she sings on that Time Enough Tomorrow. That's an Alex Glasgow song, yeah. He wrote it as a suite of songs that is called The Time Slides By. In this particular um, album of songs, it's a journey down the Tyne. So each song is sort of about a different point on the journey down the Tyne. There are beacons to be lit 
There is wine to be tasted. There are hours to use that yesterday were wasted. And there's time enough tomorrow. Time enough tomorrow. There is time enough tomorrow for a sad song. Many thanks to Jim McGain and Benny Graham, to The Unthanks and Martin Green, to Opera North, Eons and The Great Exhibition of the North. Thanks also to Femi and Alana of Reduced Listening, our producers on this episode, and to Agnieszka at Rough Guides. If you're enjoying the podcast, please have a think about reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, iTunes. The next episode is all about Malta and its architecture.